Good morning. Please open your Bibles to John chapter 1. This morning, God willing, we will complete chapter 1, and we will continue to see our Lord gathering disciples around him, continue to see his self-authenticating credibility, and we will hear more high confessions of the identity of this one who is the Son of God and the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I'd like to begin our time by reading our text of a word of prayer, and then we will dive in. John chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, the, the text is on the back of the notes, and the notes are in the bulletin. John chapter 1, 43 to 51. reading glasses on here. Okay. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Lord God, um, we would come and see. We would ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your word, and in particular, that we might see the glories of your Son. The Lord Jesus here promises a greater vision of his identity, and his glory. We, we would ask to see that, that our love for the Lord Jesus Christ, our awe and wonder at him might increase and grow. Give us those eyes to see and those ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Our text this morning um, continues the narrative begun in chapter 119. Um, if you remember the first 18 verses, of John's gospel are a prologue, setting up in high terms the identity of the one to whom we will focus in the gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the word who is with God and who is God. He is the word who took on flesh and tabernacled among us. He is the one who brings a greater glory than anything Moses saw on Mount Sinai. And then starting in verse 19, John the Baptist, the witness to the word, testifies to his identity. And John begins a, 
a series of days, six to eight days, depending on how you're numbering them, depending on how you're numbering them. Um, I call it the week, but it could be six or eight. And we're now entering into the next day. And in this period of days, what we saw on the first day is John confesses that Jesus is present. That was the significance, I think, the day the Jews sent a delegation from Jerusalem to interrogate, to question him. Who are you? What are you doing? There is one among you, he says, whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. The Lord Jesus had previously been baptized. He'd gone out in the wilderness. He'd been tempted. And now he was in the camp of the Baptist. And then the second day, verse 29, John the Baptist publicly identifies him. He points him out and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then the third day, he does this again, and now two of his disciples move from John to Jesus. Part of what we're seeing here in this week is the transition from John being the center of attention, John being the prophet in the wilderness to whom faithful Israelites go out and receive baptism, to John pointing out Jesus, and then starting this morning's text, Jesus moving from John the, t- the two camps separating. And John is, is thrilled that this happens, even though the last time he shows up in the gospel, his disciples in chapter three are less thrilled at John's eclipse. And so on the third day, two disciples leave John and begin following Jesus. And we saw last week that Jesus welcomed them based upon what they were seeking. And what they were seeking was him. Where are you staying? We want to be there. He says, come and see. And we saw that just with a brief period of time with the Lord Jesus, Andrew is convinced. He goes and finds his brother Peter, well, Simon. And he says in verse 41, we have found the Messiah. I think one of the things John is highlighting for us in in, in stacking these days together is the credibility, the authenticating glory of the Son of God. It does not take Andrew days and weeks and months of careful study to determine, is this or is this not the Messiah, the Son of God? He spends a brief period of time with Jesus, and immediately, without any hesitation, without any qualification, verse 41, we have found the Messiah. We're going to see more of that same response of disciples meeting Jesus, encountering Jesus, and immediately confessing glorious truths about him. And part of what John is showing us is is Jesus is clearly to those who met him, who he said he was. He's the real deal. He is credible. He is glorious. So we'll look at this in three encounters in our text. Philip's encounter with Jesus, Nathaniel's encounter with Philip, and then Nathaniel's encounter with Jesus. Now, there's some ambiguity in the text that the ESV does not represent. The LSV and some other translations do. In in the ESV, verse 43, they have it clearly, Jesus is the one who makes the move to go to Galilee. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. The Greek text just says, the next day, he. And so it is possible, depending on how you read the last few verses, that the he is actually Andrew. Um, D.A. Carson argues for that. And he likes the fact that if that's true, if the he is Andrew then all of the disciples of Jesus who come to him are brought by the testimony of others. He likes that consistency. Jesus does show up in verse 43 in the Greek. You'd read it. The next day, he decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip, and Jesus said to him, follow me. And it's possible. 
I think at the end of the day, the ESV is probably right simply because the move away from John the Baptist and his sphere of influence to Galilee is a significant move. Up until this point, John is a prophet. All of Israel is going out to him. All of faithful Israel is going out to be baptized by him. And then in the midst of his camp and his group is the Messiah, the Lamb of God. They're, they're cohabitating together in the same circle. Starting this morning, Jesus and his group is going to separate. And that, if you turn to chapter 3, is highlighted in the distress of John the Baptist's remaining disciples. Verse 22 of chapter 3. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. He's doing the same thing John was doing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification and they came to John and said to him with clear chagrin, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, that's the focus, Jesus was with him, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. I tend to think the move to separate from John the Baptist is significant, and I therefore tend to think Jesus initiated that move. That it, it seems strange that Andrew, having just been told to follow him, is the one who makes this initiative. So I, I think the ESV is right, but I wanted to point out you, it could be read the other way. Could be read the other way. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. It's interesting. This is where the wedding in chapter 2 takes place. It, it's possible. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. It's possible Jesus is moving to Galilee because he's got this invitation and he's going. The, the invitation may come later, but we're moving towards where the next action is going to take place, where Jesus' first miracle is going to take place. In many respects, this week that John lays out is culminated with chapter 2, verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So yes, they're believing something already. They're confessing him, but their faith is going to grow. It's going to strengthen when they see him work his first miracle. When they understand its significance, they see his glory and they believe. That's where we're heading because after that, John's week is let go of. Verse 12, they stayed there for a few days. So John, the gospel writer, wants us to know these things we're reading here happen, bang, 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 tightly together as a unit. And then he clearly doesn't care anymore that we understand tight chronology. Do the next things that happen happen? Boom, boom, boom. We don't know. But we need to know these do. We need to know these do. So where the wedding was to be. And the significance here is this is now a move to physically separate, physically separating from the Baptist which is going to be the point of contention in chapter 3. Here's, here's what happens. Here's what happens. Um, he found Philip and said to him, follow me. And that's Jesus' call. Jesus here fully taking the initiative, whether or not you read of this Andrew going and finding him, Jesus tells Philip, you follow me. And that's Jesus' call. That's what identifies, by the way, his people. There are no Christians who don't follow Jesus. In John 10, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they 
follow me. What is the mark of Jesus' sheep? They follow him. They follow him. So he calls on Philip to follow him, and ultimately following Jesus will lead to Golgotha. It'll lead to his arrest, and Jesus calls on him, follow me, you follow me. And then John gives us this note. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Now, John 12, 21 makes it clear Bethsaida is in Galilee. So Galilee is a region in Israel. And within that region, there is Bethsaida. Now, some, I'll pause here, some of the, those who scoff at the Bible think this is one of the clear contradictions in Scripture because here in verse 44, Bethsaida is said to be the city of Andrew and Peter, yet in Mark 1, 21 and 29, Capernaum is said to be the city of, I'll, I'll read it to you, um, they came into Capernaum, Mark one twenty one, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And then after that's done in verse 29, and immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. This, this is no problem. Um, we're going to see even later in this text, Jesus is identified as where? Jesus of Nazareth. Was he born in Nazareth? No. Um, did he spend all his time there? No. So you can be born and from someplace. This shocker. You can be born and from someplace and yet live someplace else. And so Andrew and Peter are from Bethsaida and they live in Capernaum. No problem. No problem at all. Just, just, well, no, you'll see people in the back. Aha, got you. And it's not very impressive. It's not very impressive. Um, just one, just in case you encounter somebody on the interwebs or something. Um, so he gives us that note. This also might explain why, why Peter and Andrew would be readily going with him. They're going back towards where they live as they head towards um, Bethsaida. Bethsaida means house of fish or fishing. It's a fishing community, as we'll see. Um, so that's Philip's encounter with Jesus. Jesus spots Philip. He says, you follow me. And the, the, the call is so authoritative, we're not even told that he follows Jesus. It's just assumed and then in the next verse, we're going to see him act like a follower. Jesus' call is so authoritative, the response so absolute, that there isn't even a statement describing it. It's assumed. And I love what Philip does next, Nathaniel's encounter with Philip. Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. I think, I think this is wonderful. This is now the second or third time in this report where a brand new follower of Jesus goes out and introduces another new person to him. I, I think we see, in case you're wondering, well, did Philip respond to the call? Is there any doubt? Is there any doubt that Philip responded to Jesus' call? Look, and, and again, notice how quickly Philip goes from nothing, Jesus, you follow me, to completely convinced, completely sold out on who Jesus is. Here's another person who spends but a little time with Jesus and is immediately making bold, strong claims about him. No, no hedging of bets, no qualifying. Look, look what he says. He found Nathanael. He said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. So let's, let's pause and, and ask ourselves, who is this Nathanael? Nathanael is not named in any of the other gospels. 
Nathaniel only shows up in John two or three times. Now, um, we'll deal with that in a moment. First point, what we see here is a new disciple, again, seeks to make another disciple. This is how the kingdom advances, one by one, as people tell other people about Jesus. Now, now can advance through broad preaching. We see in Acts 2, Peter preaching at Pentecost. But it equally advances simply by friends telling their friends, their neighbors, their co-workers about Jesus. That's how it starts here. The kingdom advances, John MacArthur says, through personal evangelism, through sharing with someone else. And it's glorious to see this in its infancy here. Now, Nathaniel is possibly Bartholomew. Bartholomew. And, and the reason for that is Bartholomew is probably not Bartholomew's full name. Bar, son of Ptolemy. Like, like Simon Bar Jonah, son of Jonah. So, so Bartholomew would mean son of Ptolemy, which is usually a way of disambiguating other people, if, if it's a common enough name. And in the list of Jesus' disciples in the other Gospels, Bartholomew is closely associated with Philip. It's just a suggestion. It's not certain. But in case someone's wondering, well, who is this? It's possible that Nathaniel is Nathaniel Bartholomew, Nathaniel's son of Ptolemy. In Mark one twenty one, no, in uh, Matthew ten three, as they list the disciples, Philip and Bartholomew, and all three of the Gospels, when they list them, it's always linked together. It's a possibility. It's possible he's not, but that's one suggestion that seems popular. Um, but what's more important is not who he is, but Jesus' interaction with him. So Philip comes to Nathaniel, he finds him, and he makes this bold declaration. Again, no hedging, no qualifications. We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So, so look at the titles that have been applied to Jesus so far. John, the gospel writer in the prologue, has called him the Word. John the Baptist has called him this, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Then um, Andrew finds his brother, Simon, and he says, we have found the Messiah. So Messiah, Lamb of God, the Word, the Son, also in the prologue. Well, here we have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote. In other words, this is the one about whom the Old Testament is written. That is a bold claim. He's absolutely right. That's a bold claim. That's a bold claim. Also notice, um, again, that pattern of, for disambiguation, because Jesus, Joshua, we probably translated this, is a common name. You're not just, you can't just say Joshua, Jesus. It's Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. And note for a moment the, the humility of our Lord. Um, Jesus was not born in Nazareth, was he? And we know, and we'll know in a minute, Nazareth is not a town that's got a particularly high reputation. He's, he could have been known as Jesus the Bethlehemite, Jesus the Davidite. And even as he spends time with these disciples, he doesn't correct them. You, you should know I'm actually, I wasn't actually born in Nazareth. I was, I was born in Bethlehem. Nazareth is, is so despised that by the end of the book of Acts, that becomes the title for Christians. In Acts 24, 5, we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect 
of the Nazarenes. So Jesus has humbled himself. And again, this is a, helps explain how someone can be from someplace and not live where they're from. The text actually gives us another example of that. Um, so he makes this bold claim. This is the one about whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote. Now Nathaniel's response. Apparently, and this seems to be true everywhere, it doesn't matter if you're from the despised region, there's always a place lower than you. So Galilee, we know, is not a particularly well thought of area. But even within Galilee, there's a tier. And these two fishing, fishing villages, the house of fish looks down on Nazareth. And, and so Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, there's a lot of discussion. Is he being, is he being racist here? Is he being... Well, we, we, let Jesus judge this. But out of his mouth comes this sort of proverb how can anything good come out of this place? And in this sense, he's actually reasoning similar to how the Pharisees will reason. If you turn over to um, chapter 7, I believe. Nope, not 7. Hold on. 9. Not even nine. Hold on. I have completely. Oh, man. I had the wrong thing written down. It's when, it's when Nicodemus stands up for Jesus. Does our law condemn someone unless it gives them a hearing? And they respond to him. Are you also from Galilee? Look and see that no prophet comes from Galilee. One of you will look it up for me and give it to me after the service. Um, but in that sense, there's, this, but there's a similar notion. How, how can, you're claiming, in other words, Philip, that the one of whom Moses and all the law and the prophets, the one of whom the entire Old Testament is pointing to, this great one comes out of the despised region of the despised region. And can, can anything good come out of Galilee? And I love Philip's answer. Come and see. And that should, just want to pause. That should be instructive for us. I think probably the biggest reason most of us don't witness, share our faith, it's because we're afraid someone's going to ask a question we don't have an answer to. Well, what about, what about, what about? You don't need to have an answer to every objection. I mean, it's good to study. Paul would reason with people in the synagogues. If you're able to, that's great. It's equally valid to say, yeah, I don't know, come and see. In other words, Philip is not only convinced of Jesus' credulity and credibility, he's also convinced that if Nathaniel will but meet him, he too will be convinced. I don't know. I don't know if anything comes out of Nazareth. Come and see. And for us, in our days, we witness, where, where do people encounter Jesus? They, they encounter him in Scripture. The, the best recommendation I can give for you with your unbelieving friends and family is get them reading the Bible. I've... I've come to believe and read the Bible that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, yeah, what about, yeah, what about? I, I don't know about all that. I'd love to know what you think. I'd love to read the Gospel of John with you and see what you think. Get them to encounter Jesus. Let them see if he's compelling or not. So if you're able to reason, if you're able to give answers, that's great. You don't need to be able to do that to go out and be an effective witness. You don't need, just, just come and see. Come and see Jesus. See for yourself. Now, Nathaniel does, presumably. 
Because the next thing we see is Nathanael's encounter with Jesus. Let's read 47 to 51. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So Nathanael comes and Jesus sees him. And Jesus again takes initiative and he says in his hearing about him, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. It's an interesting statement. Guile or deceit. Here's an Israelite who's sincere. And I think this helps um, let Nathaniel off the hook from, from being a bigot when he looks to get anything good come out of Nazareth. He says it honestly, sincerely. And we're going to see in a moment he's just as willing when he meets counter evidence to abandon his preconception and adopt a new one. I wouldn't wouldn't paint him too negatively. Um, Paul's able to talk about Cretans, right? And and, and as a general rule, that's true. And as long as we, when we meet counter evidence, drop it and okay, we'll see that with Nathaniel. In general, he wouldn't expect anything good to come out of Nazareth. And then when he sees Jesus exhibit supernatural knowledge, he's like, well, I was wrong, okay. And uh, he proves to be an Israelite in whom there is no guile. Now, calling him an Israelite and without deceit, I think is significant for something Jesus is about to say in a few, few minutes. So we'll come back to that. But note that, an Israelite in whom there is no guile. Um, and so what we learn from this is that Jesus knows him. Jesus is exhibiting supernatural knowledge. This is something that will be stated plainly at the end of chapter 2. If we turn to chapter 2, John will tell us this plainly. Verse 23 to 25. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. Why? Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. He's already evidenced this same type of supernatural knowledge when he looks at Peter, Simon, I'm sorry, and says, you will be called Peter. This is, this is a mark of a prophet. You remember when Elijah, when Naaman comes to be cleansed, and he is cleansed, his servant secretly goes out and, and receives payment from Naaman, and Elijah says, I saw you when you did that. This is, this is, there's an antecedent prophetic example of this type of knowledge. And so Nathaniel is stunned. How do you know me? And Jesus gives him either further demonstration of supernatural knowledge. Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And so not only does Jesus know him, 
but Jesus saw him. And, and so what we're getting is Jesus has both internal knowledge, knowledge of his character, knowledge of his personality and his traits, but also external knowledge, lo- location and what he's doing. Jesus knows Nathaniel inside and out, and, and by extension, he, he knows you and me inside and out, right? And that's, that's what we're seeing. I mean, because there's, there's a the playful sense in which when Philip says, come and see, we the reader, we're tagging along for the ride, we're coming and seeing. And so I'm t- telling you, Jesus knows who you are inwardly. He knows what type of character you have, and he knows what you're doing and where you're about, because he's God, well, that is enough for Nathaniel. And I think in part we see his lack of guile here, his lack of duplicity. Sure enough, he has a low opinion of Nazareth. He, sure enough, I'm meeting this person that's evidencing supernatural knowledge. This must be a prophet from God. And he starts doing some biblical theology, putting some dots together, and out of his mouth comes this bold declaration, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. We see Nathaniel confesses Christ. Nathaniel confesses Christ. Now, how is it that Nathaniel can come up with these titles? Again, some commentators think there's no way Nathaniel could, could conclude these things. We read the prologue. We know he's the son of God because John has told us this. Nathaniel didn't have the prologue. How does Nathaniel go from what good thing comes out of Nazareth to you're the son of God? Allow me to suggest to you that the one of whom the Old Testament and law and the prophets spoke and predicted would be exactly that. Um, t- turn to 2 Samuel 7. I'll pause here briefly. 2 Samuel 7, a, a key passage. We're going to look at 2 Samuel 7, then we're going to look at uh, Psalm 2 briefly. Um, how, how, in other words, this Nathaniel put these dots together and come up with, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. What we're looking at in 2 Samuel 7 is what is known as the Davidic covenant. God made a covenant with David about kingship and rule. Chapter 7, we'll start in verse 11, middle of verse 11. And I will give you rest from all your enemies, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. He's going to build a dynasty for David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. And he shall be to me a son. So in the Davidic covenant, God promises David a perpetual dynasty of rulers on the throne, and he indicates that his relationship with that son of David will be as a father to a son, which is exactly, go over to Psalm 2, what Psalm 2 picks up and spells out clearly. In Psalm 2, Let's just read the first nine verses. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, his Messiah, his Christ, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So we've got this opposition to Yahweh and his rule. 
the kings and the rulers of the earth, they don't like his rule. They want to throw it off. So what, what will the Lord God do? Is he worried? He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. What's the Lord's response to the global revolt against his rule? I've installed my king. That should take care of it. Then in verse 7, Psalm 2 picks up from the perspective of this installed king. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, and he cites the Davidic covenant, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So Psalm 2 makes explicit what the Davidic covenant has implicit, which is this coming Davidic king, this Messiah, this Christ from David's own body, he would be a son to the father and the father would be a father to him. The Lord said, you are my son today, I've begotten you. So I don't know how fully Nathaniel's pieced all this together, but there's, there is antecedent Old Testament text for him to make these conclusions. If this is indeed the one of whom Moses and the law and the prophets spoke, and I'm convinced Nathaniel's, I think, saying that he is a prophet, he's evidencing supernatural knowledge, well then, he's the son of God, he's the king of Israel. In that sense, I think son of God and king of Israel are synonymous. I don't think he's making two separate declarations, but he's speaking about the same thing two ways. You're the promised Davidite. You're the fulfillment of Psalm 2. I think, I think Nathaniel's saying something like that. He might be saying more. I, I don't think he's pieced out Trinitarian theology like we've seen in the prologue, where he's the son and the only begotten son of the father at the father's side. I, don't, I, don't, I doubt very much Nathaniel's gone that far ahead, but I, there's, there's Old Testament texts that warrant this conclusion and this title. You are the son of God. You are the king of Israel, which is bold. And again, this is the evidence that Nathaniel is someone in whom there is no guile. Yes, he evidences some of that uh, local rivalry, the disdain for Nazareth. And yet when he encounters counter evidence, he drops it. He's not afraid to admit when he's wrong and he confesses. And again, notice how compelling Jesus is to take someone as predisposed to be negative I mean, some of those in John the Baptist camp, they got John the Baptist talking Jesus up. Here's somebody whose starting position is mildly negative. <laughs> Nazareth, yeah, right. And a brief encounter with Jesus, and he is convinced and declaring things about him that are either gloriously true or absurd. This is the Son of God, the King of Israel. And John wants us to see, John the Gospel writer wants us to see how compelling Jesus is, how quickly these Israelites come to conclusion. Now, if you turn to John 7, the reference to John 7 is it's a promise Jesus makes in John 7 that I, I take a lot of hope in. And, and when, I, when I witness and try to encourage people to read their Bibles, I think of this promise. Um, John 7, 17. Jesus' authority is challenged. On what basis do you do what you're doing? Do you say what you're saying? And Jesus makes them a promise. 
that I think is true today. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. And I take that to be God's promise that he will confirm his word. If the reader, if the one coming to the text is saying, I want to do what is right. I want to believe what is true. If there is a savior here, this is how I came to the Bible as a, as a seek, as someone God was seeking. And I remember, Lord, is this, I know I need a savior. I, I know I'm terrified of standing in front of you. Should, should I look here or should I read the Quran? Should I read the Book of Mormon? Lord, is this, is this where you've revealed yourself? And Jesus says, if anyone's will is to do the will of the Father, if you're coming sincerely, you will know. So my, so my old pastor, John MacArthur, said, you don't need to defend a lion. You just let the lion out of his cage. He'll take care of himself. It's God's job to confirm his word. It's the Spirit's job to confirm Scripture. Just get people reading it. Just get people interacting with Jesus. Jesus is compelling. Get them to interact with Jesus in the Bible. And let the Holy Spirit and the Word of God do its work. Let the Holy Spirit and the Word of God do his work. But Jesus doesn't stop here. He's brought Nathaniel to faith in him, but then he evidences some surprise and he makes a great promise. Jesus promises greater things. So Nathaniel confesses Christ and Jesus in response promises greater things. Jesus promises greater things. Jesus says to him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe, I'm pause, let me say something about the fig tree. There's a lot of ink spilled about what the significance of the fig tree is. What was Nathaniel doing under the fig tree? I don't know. John doesn't tell us, so I don't think it's significant. I think the significance of the fig tree is that Jesus is evidencing specific knowledge. Sometimes when you meet people who claim to be prophets, they make very vague, hard-to-falsify predictions. Great things will be happening sometime in the future. Well, it's hard to falsify that. I think the point of the fig tree, no, there's even a tradition that says that Nathaniel was spared from, remember when Herod killed all the children under three because of the, the, the magi? There's even a, a tradition in the early church that Nathaniel's mother hid him and protected him from that by hiding him under a fig tree. And Jesus is saying, I, it, I imagine that would preach really well. It's just not in the text. And I think the fig tree is just there to make it clear Jesus is indicating specific knowledge. It can't be faked. He's not bluffing. And Nathaniel recognizes that. I guess the point of the fig tree. John, the gospel writer, doesn't point anything further out of it. Okay. But Jesus responds with a promise. And, and he's commending him. You believe? Just because I said I saw you under the fig tree? Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Now, my Bible, in verse 51, then, has a footnote. The you is plural, twice in verse 51. That's important. Because my next point is that this promise of Jesus, the Jesus' solemn promise, is to all who believe. His promise is to all who believe. It's solemn because this is the first of 25 times in John's gospel where Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, amen, amen. It's the only gospel where Jesus uses this formula. And this is the first of 25 times. It's always on Jesus' lips. No one else says it. Jesus says it. And as best as I can tell, he says it to confirm. This you can take to the bank. 
This is solemnly true. This is seriously true. You can count on this. Truly, truly, I say to you all, or as they say in the South, you all, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And, and the reason why I think this extends not just to Nathaniel and Philip and Andrew and Peter, but to us, is that same argument from the lesser to the greater. Jesus is saying, you, you believe? This is Jewish way of thinking, from the lesser to the greater. Just because I said I saw you under the fig tree, you believe? Well, you're going to see some greater things than this. If that is good, at the end of the gospel, in John 20, 29, Jesus says this to Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. So it's even greater to believe without seeing him at all. There's a greater blessing. So that puts us then, if, if, if Nathaniel is blessed, if he's going to have this blessing because he believed with such little miraculous um, evidence, then I think by extension it's fair to reason this, this is to us as well. So what is Jesus saying and what is the promise? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And here, if you'll turn in your Bibles, Jesus is quoting, partially alluding to, Genesis 28. We've got to take a look at Genesis 28. And this, I think, will also help explain his slightly enigmatic statement, an Israelite in whom there is no guile. Genesis 28. This is, of course, the account of Jacob's dream, the stairway to heaven. Um, in fact, in Genesis 27, Jacob has just impersonated his brother, stolen his birthright, and Esau comes in, figures this out, and look at verse 27, 35. Isaac says to him, your brother has come deceitfully. Well, in the Greek Old Testament, that's the same word for guile or deceit. Jacob here is a man of deceit, a man of guile. The man who would be named Israel, about 10 chapters later, the man who would be named Israel, no, not 10, in 32, is a man at this time of deceit. I think that's part of what Jesus is setting up. Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no guile. He's not a Jacob of deceit. He's an Israel without guile. I think there's some setup here. At this point, Jacob has deceived, connived, stolen the blessing, and then he has run, because Esau is mad. And on his way, in 28, he's sleeping out under the stars. And not because Jacob's the good guy and Esau's the bad guy, but because God is the good God. Because he wants to establish that his choice would stand. Who said, the older shall serve the younger. He appears to Jacob in a dream. Look at 28.10. Jacob left Beersheba and went to Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there at night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in the place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on earth, the top of it reaching heaven. Behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. By the way, you could translate the Hebrew on him, which I think is how Jesus 
takes it based on his citation. That's the quotation Jesus uses. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land in which you lie I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. So what is God doing? The blessing given by Isaac, even though it was stolen deceitfully, the Lord is confirming and establishing. Not, not because Jacob's the good guy, but this is exactly what the Lord God predicted beforehand. The, the older will serve the younger. Two, two nations are in your womb, right, of, of his mother. And the blessing was given, and here God confirms that Jacob alone, potentially pursued by Esau, the Lord God comes and strengthens him, encourages him, and makes it clear, I will keep my promise. I will accomplish my purposes in and through you. Now notice his response. Then Jacob awoke from this place and said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And he goes on and he names the place Bethel, house of God. And so what he gets, I think, I think the significance is that ladder or that staircase is he's seeing, a, here's a place where heaven and earth meet. Here's, here's the gateway, the house to God. This is an amazing and awesome place because I saw the heavens opened, the angels of God ascending and descending on a staircase or a ladder on this place or to this place. Now turn back to John 1, what is, what is Jesus promising? I'm arguing he's not just promising it to Nathaniel, but he's promising it to, to you and to me and to all who believe. What is the nature of that promise? And again, oh, there's so much um, people are writing about this. Um, I, I, I want to suggest two things, two things. Um, notice the comparison is to seeing, you will see, the vision will happen. Just as Jacob reached, received a vision, so Nathaniel will receive a vision. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending, but not on Jacob, but on the Son of Man. On the Son of Man. So your first, I want to suggest two things this signifies. One, God will further confirm to them Jesus' true identity. God will further confirm to them Jesus' true identity. What, what, is, what is the first purpose this vision serves to Jacob? It's to confirm the promises that he received. He received by deceit, by guile, but he did receive them, and God is confirming them to him. He's establishing them. Those promises you stole from your brother, those promises you tricked, that blessing you tricked your father into giving you, I am confirming it. I will establish it. Um, D.A. Carson writes, because Jesus, oh dear. because Jesus explicitly alludes to these experiences in Jacob's life, it becomes clear what type of vision he is promising. And what the disciples are promised is what Jacob saw. To see heaven opened is to be accorded a vision of divine matters. What the disciples are promised then is heaven-sent confirmation 
that the one they have acknowledged as the Messiah has indeed been appointed by God. That's, I think, the first thing, which is where we're headed to in John's gospel is the wedding at Cana. Jesus will work a miracle, and they're going to see his glory, and they're going to believe. They will seek further confirmation, and ultimately, the ultimate sign of God's confirmation will be the resurrection. The Apostle Paul in Acts says this, he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. It's it's great that Nathaniel believes with this evidence he will receive much, much more. And so as we continue to study through the gospel, we should expect to see more of his glory, more confirmation from the Lord, more proof, as it were, heaven opening. Or as he said in the prologue, we've received from his glory a grace replacing a grace. This is the second reality, and we will sing our closing song. There's a second reality also, I think, and that is the change. Jacob made a big deal of Bethel. Wow, this place, this place where I had this vision, where I saw heaven and earth united, where I saw the angels of God ascending and descending. This place must be the house of God. And again, D.A. Carson writes, even the old Bethel, the old house of God, has been superseded. It is no longer there at Bethel that God reveals himself, but in Jesus. The point being in the text, the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus is the sight. And of course, in chapter 2, what will Jesus say when he drives them out of the temple and they say, by what authority do you do this? We'll destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up, because Jesus is the true temple. And then in chapter 4, with the Samaritan woman, she says, well, is it this hill, or is it this hill? Well, Jesus says, well, the Jews got it right. You're wrong. It's not on Mount Samaria. But an hour is coming, and now is, where it's not going to matter anymore. The sacred mountains of the Samaritans, Jesus makes obsolete. Through him comes the fullness of grace that surpasses and replaces the earlier grace. You're blank here. Jesus is the place where God and man meet. Jesus is the place where the gate to heaven is, if you will. One other commentator writes this, Jesus is the new Bethel, the place where God is revealed, where heaven and earth, God and humanity meet, just as he is the new temple and the new proper place of worship. In fact, Jesus is the very culmination of all God's revelatory expressions, providing a fullness of divine self-disclosure of which even Jacob could not even dream. I love that. Jacob's dream is being superseded. These disciples, who as of yet know little of what awaits them, will soon be witnesses of revelation far exceeding that received by any Israelite in previous history. I'm going to call the worship team up, and as they come up, one last point. This is also setting up a theme in chapter 4 that Jesus is greater than Jacob. You remember the woman at the well will ask him, are, are you greater than Jacob? Yes, he is. The glory he brings, the revelation he brings is greater, and it just remains for you and for me to see it and to believe.